Bulletproof Radio, a state of high performance. You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. Everyone's talking about red light therapy beds and for good reason. There's a company called ARRC LED that's building an entirely new class of LED devices. ARRC LED beds integrate proprietary scanning technology and frequency protocols to shape the delivery of six different wavelengths in dose-optimized photobiomodulation. Yes, that's a lot of words. What it is, though, is that photobiomodulation improves the underlying energetics of the cells in your body. And those changes can benefit nearly every tissue and organ and system in your body. You change your cells and you change your life. For more information, visit ARRCLED.com. What if there was a way to level up your energy, get rid of stress, and take more control of your body? Welcome to Quantum Upgrade. This is a new technology that taps into quantum energy to help you feel amazing. Quantum Upgrade has a lot of different products that help protect you from EMF and help activate your body's natural healing abilities. You can expect better sleep, more resilience, less stress, and better blood flow. The cool thing about Quantum Upgrade is that the products are backed by a lot of heavy-duty scientific studies, and there's a new measurable upgrade. You can now use Quantum Upgrade to increase your consciousness levels between 1,400 and 2,200 on the Hawkins map of consciousness. If you don't know what that means, do some research because it's impressive, it's fun to learn about, and it's something that I've come to understand. Ready to try Quantum Upgrade? Visit quantumupgrade.io slash Dave for a seven-day free trial. Today's cool fact of the day is that there are over 100 trillion bacteria in your body, more than you have number of cells. In fact, it's 10 times more than the number of cells in your body. You're actually more bacteria than human. These microbes have a huge influence on your body's immune function, how your brain works, and how healthy you are in general. If you take care of your gut, you'll take care of your entire set of health. What if there was a way to feel younger for longer? Well, there is. Your body needs something called the NAD plus molecule to help you age well. When you're young, your body makes a lot of NAD plus, and that helps you make energy. It helps you keep your DNA healthy, absorb nutrients well, and it protects your cells from stress. But once you hit about 30, your NAD plus levels start to drop. The good news is that longevity scientists have found some things that can help, like niacin, niacinamide, and niagen. They help your body make more NAD plus even as you age. All three of these are in an amazing formula called Qualia NAD plus. Check out Qualia NAD plus risk-free for up to 100 days at neurohacker.com slash Dave15 to save an extra 15%. That's neurohacker.com slash Dave15, Qualia NAD plus. It's what I use. Today's interview is with Dr. Doug McGuff, MD, author of Body by Science. Dr. McGuff is a true expert when it comes to maximum results with minimal effort, which is why we were so excited to have him on the show today. The exercise guidelines on our site are largely based on his book, which promises and delivers results in 12 minutes of exercise a week. Dr. McGuff comes on the show to talk about how you can use the right kind of exercise and diet to maximize your performance, longevity, and health. This is about as bulletproof as it gets. We have an awesome listener Q&A today where we discuss what supplements you should take to boost your immune system, whether or not sleeping in blocks is healthy, and the health effects of flax seeds. 
We close with our biohacker report, where you are going to hear a brief summary of three new pieces of research that today will help you get smarter by being more social, avoid wasting money on inaccurate body fat tests, and to grow healthier kids by avoiding soy formula. Army, what biohacks have you been working on this week? I just got a new book called The Cholesterol Myth by Uth Ravenskoff. It goes into excruciating detail about pretty much all the studies on cholesterol and many of the studies on saturated fat and how it's just ridiculous the way those things have been vilified by mainstream health authorities. So whenever anybody asks me about why we recommend cholesterol and high saturated fat intake, I'm just going to point them to this book. It's absolutely phenomenal, and we'll have a link to it in the show notes too. But it's absolutely great. It's called The Cholesterol Myth. Sounds like an awesome book, and I can't wait to read it as soon as you're done with it, Army. Definitely. What have you been up to? I've been going through my results from Wellness FX, and we, we have a recent special on the site for Wellness FX. So I got my results back and had my first conversation with a physician that they recommend, and I, I'm pretty pleased with the results, and I'm sort of annoyed that I did the test right after having you know the 15% of my body burned kind of deep from ice burns because that obviously shows um, significant healing inflammation, which, which is what the doctor said. Yeah, that's what you'd expect. So I need to retest my inflammatory markers when I haven't just experienced a major trauma. <laughs> but one of the numbers that I'm focusing in on is my ferritin level. And when you eat a good amount of red meat, which has all sorts of good health effects, it does raise the amount of iron in your body, your ferritin levels. And at the Personal Life Extension Conference, one of the physicians, his name is Terry, and I'm blanking on his last name, the guy who works with uh, Dr. Kurzweil, he gave an interesting talk about ferritin levels and why there's a convincing argument for lowering them. The way you lower them is by giving blood. So I'm scheduled to give blood in the next week or so here, and I'm going to basically give a pint every two weeks until I get my ferritin levels down from about 200 to about 20. That's a lot of blood. Either that or I'm going to take up sword fighting. I haven't decided. <laughs> yeah, that would work too. Or you can start boxing or something. <laughs> That'll work. Speaking of self-improvement, now we're going to have our interview with Dr. Doug McGuff, the author of Body by Science. Doug McGuff, MD, is an author, personal trainer, and practicing medical professional. In 1989, he graduated from University of Texas Medical School at San Antonio and went on to train in emergency medicine at the University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences at Little Rock, where he was actually chief resident. From there, Dr. McGuff served as faculty in the Wright State University Emergency Medicine Residency and was a staff emergency physician at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base Hospital. Then, along with John Little, who's a renowned strength and conditioning coach, Dr. McGuff wrote Body by Science, one of the best books on strength, health, and fitness you're likely to find anywhere. Dr. McGuff comes on our show today to talk about how you can enhance your performance, your health, and your longevity with an exercise program that takes only 12 minutes a week. Dr. McGuff, thanks for taking some time to be on the show today. We're big fans of your work. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Well, it turns out that the 12 minutes a week thing is really, really attractive. You've actually beat the Tim Ferriss four-hour body uh, substantially. 
<laughs> with only 12 minutes a week. And I think there's a ton of science behind what you do. And our recommendations on the Bulletproof Executive blog are very much, you know, too much exercise inhibits good health, you know, if you're burning yourself out and that small amounts of exercise seem to have a better impact. So seeing you lay this out so crisply in your book was really inspiring. How did you get started as a physician, particularly with health and fitness earlier on in your career? It's kind of unusual for physicians to go that way versus especially ER ones. I'm married to an ER physician, by the way. So how did you get into exercise so early? My sympathies. I'm sorry for you. (laughs) Um, In all honesty, my interest in health and fitness didn't occur after my medical training. It actually predated it by a very long period of time. In middle school and high school, I was actually very deeply involved racing bicycle motocross or BMX. And when I first started in the sport, I was doing no training at all. And it showed. I got my ass handed to me about every race. And simultaneously, my brother was taking a uh, weightlifting course at uh, college and he had a weight set in the garage. And I decided I would just give a try using the pamphlet that came with the weight set to do some training. And the results it produced for my racing were very outstanding. I went from being a non-main maker to, you know, winning first place consistently. Um, About the time I was 15, I was out training, doing some sprints and ran into a fellow that uh, had just opened a Nautilus gym um, that I wanted to go try which I did, but I could not afford to go to. But I negotiated um, janitorial services in exchange for a membership. And when I was cleaning the place there at age 15, I came across Arthur Jones' Nautilus training bulletin. And the guy said, I got several copies of that. You can take it. And I took it home and just devoured it. And from that point forward is where I developed my interest in health and fitness. And I took that interest with me through medical school And it allowed me to process the information from medical school through that lens, um, which was kind of a unique perspective. And that's kind of how I ended up using my medical knowledge to try to um, refine an approach to exercise. Speaking of your approach to exercise, you have really specific definitions for health and for fitness and for exercise. Would you share those for our listeners so they can see how you think about these differently than, say, the average Joe? Sure. Thanks for noticing that, by the way. I think that's one of the most important things when you're having any sort of discussion is to actually define your terms. And you see these terms bandied about both in health, fitness, and medicine. You see wellness centers and you see health and fitness centers. Everyone has a notion of what that is, but no one really defines it. So let me tell you what I think. First is the absence of disease, and second component of health is an appropriate balance between an anabolic and a catabolic state. And fitness, I like to define as physiologic headroom. And what I mean by that, and that's a phrase actually coined by Arthur Devaney, sort of the father of the Paleolithic diet movement. And what physiologic headroom is, is the amount of output you have above a resting baseline. Exercise I like to see as a process of bringing a stressful stimulus to the body that aggressively weakens the skeletal musculature to stimulate an adaptive change. Now, I think of all the things in those definitions, the most important thing to get across as you discuss exercise is the appropriate balance between the anabolic and catabolic state. 
So how would we go about achieving that balance between being anabolic and catabolic? I think that matters in a whole lot of different realms. When you're talking about anabolic refers to anything that is either bringing in nutrition or stimulating growth and differentiation. And a catabolic state is anything that's inducing stress, breakdown, or turnover. And that is something that is probably the biggest factor in modern health problems today. And when we talk about a catabolic versus an anabolic state, we're talking about sleep versus wakefulness. We're talking about food intake versus energy expenditure. We're talking about exercise versus recovery. We're talking about daylight exposure versus nighttime dark exposure. All of those things fit into that appropriate balance, and all of that's very skewed. For instance, on the activity level, in modern times, the vast, vast majority of people are tilted way in the anabolic direction. They have too much rest, too much sitting at a desk, not enough physical activity. But of the people that do form an interest in exercise, fitness, and health, because they don't understand the appropriate relationship between exercise and the results they're seeking, they end up adding more and more and more. So the vast majority of people that are actually interested in exercise have now destroyed the balance by going to the other side. They're working out too often. They're working out too intensely, too frequently without adequate attention to recovery because they don't understand that the exercise is actually a stressful stimulus that produces no direct change. They don't understand that it's their body that during a period of rest actually synthesizes the change that they're looking for. So that balance has to be sought out in all realms for everything to work optimally. So that's a pretty important point there that exercise is a stressor because you have all of these these people, including me, who talk about you know, the effect of excess stress on the body. And I'm a fan of heart rate variability training uh, using the heart math technologies and sort of removing the the inappropriate stresses that don't produce a response that the body wants. But a lot of people sort of think, oh, I need exercise to de-stress, but you're saying exercise is a form of stress. That's correct, especially in the context in which most people living in modern society try to do it. Number one, they are under chronic stress. They have too much light exposure, too little sleep. They perceive things that should be inconsequential in an evolutionary perspective as life and death threats. So just an argument with the boss or stress over um, you know, whether your position is going to be cut. Those sort of things that aren't true life threats are perceived as life threats. So we enter into an exercise program already significantly stressed. And then you have to understand that exercise, if it's to be productive at all, has to be a stressor. You are choosing something, whether properly or improperly, that momentarily decreases your functional ability, momentarily weakens you, in the hope of sending a stimulus to the body that will result in an adaptive response that makes you stronger. But most people are already starting out three feet in the hole and then digging themselves two feet deeper, and then never allowing themselves appropriate nutrition or recovery or just in general balance to fill that hole back up plus a little bit more on top. I hear a lot of people who say it's important to move, 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 you know, the stand up at a desk on a slow treadmill and, and that sort of thing. 
that's not necessarily the direction that you're talking about with exercise there, but is lymphatic drainage from movement a part of what you think about, or do you focus mostly on the muscle side of things? Sure, it is important, but I think it's important if it occurs spontaneously as a secondary measure of an appropriately strengthened musculature. It's my belief that the genes that produce what are termed the active genotype, that produce spontaneous activity, are either turned on or turned off epigenetically in the muscle by the source of activity that you choose. And only activity of a sufficient intensity is going to fatigue muscle deeply enough where there's going to be a biologic signal to make more muscle and to make more strength. And when that occurs, you are activating gene cascades within the muscle that will cause spontaneous activity to rise. We found this in our clients that once someone gets about 25 to 40% stronger, you almost cannot contain them. If they're sitting in a chair, they're thumping their leg. If they're not sitting in a chair, they're up around pacing. If they have to wait for more than 10 seconds in an elevator, they'll hit the stairs. You just can't hold them down once their musculature has the appropriate degree of health. So it's important, but it shouldn't occur as a regimen that you're trying to recreate. It should occur spontaneously as a result of having proper muscle strength. So you should move because you have energy, not because you need energy. Correct. If you try to accumulate whatever it is, 2,000 sets a day or whatever the formula is, <laughs> you're kind of pushing with a rope. You're yes. trying to achieve something that would have occurred spontaneously in a natural setting, trying to invoke the cause of that, which is actual health. Health produces that level of activity, but when you don't have appropriate health, that level of activity will not invoke health. It's a reversal of cause and effect in most people's minds. Well, let's talk about a little bit of the cause behind what we're talking about here and how developing health. What are some of the specific criteria that you have talked about in your book that makes an activity count as exercise? It's a good question. It's a question most people don't ever ask themselves. They're just usually getting their ticket punch, so to speak, getting on the elliptical for X minutes or, you know, whatever the case may be. But when we really think about it, the only way that we can get at any subsystem of the body, whether it be cardiovascular, respiratory, neurological, endocrine, is by performing mechanical work with muscle. So that's the first most basic element of it. But you've got to understand that muscle operates in a certain fashion, and you have to obey the principles of its operation. And what that means is the higher the quality of the muscular work, the more profoundly stimulating the exercise is. And what that means is you have to do a type of exercise that will recruit and fatigue as much component of that musculature as is possible in the shortest period of time. Now, muscle, when it's activated, has a particular sequence that it goes through. And this sequence is just basically a conservation of energy that has evolved into the tissue itself. And muscle is arranged into individual fibers. And like groups of individual fibers, 
are distributed evenly throughout a given muscle. And you can have a section of those, say 50, 100,000 of like fibers that will all be innervated or connected to a single nerve. That's called a motor unit. And there's different types of motor units. There are slow twitch motor units that fatigue slowly but recover quickly. And then there are some that are intermediate that fatigue and recover in an intermediate fashion. And then there are motor units that fatigue very quickly and recover slowly. So what happens is there is a sequential recruitment based on how hard you're having to work. If you're not working very hard, you can use only the first motor units. They will fatigue slowly, and if you do reach fatigue in any of them, they recover so quickly that you just kind of cycle through those over and over again. If the work becomes more demanding, you can actually fatigue that first group of fibers before they can recover, and then you have to recruit the second group. Truly means less exercise that stresses the musculature will fatigue that first group before it can recover and the second group before it can recover and then demand input from that third group until it fatigues. And if you've done it properly, you can recruit all the different motor units or muscle fiber types within a short span of time. But it takes a particular type of exertion to do that. It has to be heavy enough and demanding enough to achieve that sequential orderly recruitment, but not so heavy that you get tandem recruitment. That is, that you recruit all three simultaneously. Because what will happen then is if you select a resistance where you can only get one or two repetitions before things fail, what you've done there is you've recruited them all in tandem, and as soon as the fastest motor units drop out, you're done. So there's a particular approach to make exercise most effective, and that's what we outline in Body by Science. You said something really, really cool there. You said a lot of people are sort of looking at getting their ticket punched from an exercise perspective. There are a variety of apps in the what we'll call the quantified self space, where I, I was a leader, I was CTO of one of those companies that had a watch that did 24-7 heart rate monitoring, and the direction that the product was sort of getting dragged was towards incenting people to you know, take an extra flight of stairs or counting number of steps a day and labeling it as exercise. And I, I kind of philosophically objected with that, because as a guy who used to weigh 300 pounds and weighs 200 pounds, I know damn well that that doesn't have an impact on how much you weigh, unless you're in a famine state. <laughs> so it was refreshing to hear... You know, physician and, and well-respected expert in this sort of thing say the same thing. You know, don't punch your card there. Yeah, and you're absolutely right, and you were right to have that objection. Most people nowadays exercise for the same reason that they recycle and they go to church, despite any <laughs> evidence to the contrary that either one of those things do a damn thing. People do them because it's generally viewed as something you do when you're a good person. So you go in and get your ticket punched. You know, you drag stuff down to the recycle station, you go to church on Sunday, you're a good person, you get on the treadmill for 45 minutes, and you've gotten your ticket punched. But that's not how the human physiology works at all. The second thing, you, you made reference to, you know, your heart rate variability and how you monitor that. The reason to monitor that is to make certain that you are retaining beat-to-beat -beat variability, not yes. to count your heart rate 
heart rate is not a measure of anything appropriate. Most people don't even understand that even when you're on some aerobic machine that's spitting out your heart rate, it's not meaningful. What's, yes. what's meaningful from your cardiovascular standpoint is cardiac output. Cardiac output is heart rate times stroke volume. Stroke volume is the amount of blood ejected with each heartbeat. Now, if you're doing a hard, intense resistance training workout and you're wearing a heart monitor, you'll go, golly, my heart rate didn't go up very high. Well, the reason is, is when you're doing appropriate, truly demanding exercise, most of that cardiac output is generated by an increase in stroke volume, not heart rate. So when you're on a treadmill and you're hitting 150, 180 beats per minute and think you're doing something great, it's because your stroke volume barely changed at all. Uh-huh. Because you really placed any true demands on the cardiovascular system. So you're making up any increases in cardiac output simply by increasing heart rate while sparing stroke volume. So you're really, in the truest sense of the word, barely doing anything. It's when you see the heart rate drop because stroke volume is going up. When stroke volume goes up, stroke volume is tied entirely to the amount of blood that enters the heart during the relaxation phase. Well, to fully fill the ventricles with blood, you need enough time to do that. So you actually have to slow heart rate in order to augment stroke volume because you have to have enough time between beats to fully fill the ventricles so that you can get a good strong stroke volume per each beat of the heart. So these people that are monitoring their heart rate on the elliptical or holding onto the little handles on the exercise bike shooting for a target heart rate are just pissing in the wind. It's, it's the dumbest thing you could do. <laughs> oh, man. If you're here, I, I swear I'd give you a hug. I've been so behind that belief system there, or I'll just say that explanation for the way things work, but the way you just explained um, heart rate there is is better than anything I've heard before. Basically, the point is that your heart needs to beat harder, not faster, and that doing something kind of half-assed quickly is very different than doing it with full intensity. And uh, yeah. what what a great way to explain it, the, the way you just did. Not that, is if you do it on a treadmill, elliptical, whatever, and you hold that target heart rate for a steady period of time, what you truly need for a healthy cardiovascular system is plasticity. Yes. The ability to handle varied demands in a short span of time. If you don't believe it, wait till you're walking down the street someday and some crackhead or dude on PCP jumps on you, you'll learn how important <laughs> plasticity is for survival, and it's plasticity that's important to cardiac health. Well, if you shoot for a target heart rate and you hold that target heart rate for 45 minutes, what you have done is you have intentionally trained the beat-to-beat variability out of your heart. You've trained the plasticity out of your heart. Over a long span of time, endurance athletes are more prone to have atrial fibrillation, which is a very irregular heartbeat from the top aspect of the heart near the pacemaker. It's a very irregular heartbeat that I believe is the heart's desperate plea to try to invoke some beat-to-beat variability that is now gone in that particular subject. As I know from my training in the heart math program, people with low beat-to-beat variability have a higher mortality rate from all causes. This is a pretty significant argument that says you you should be doing at least intervals (laughs) if you're going to be spending time on cardio. My prediction is that if you've got a large enough study group 
what you would eventually uncover if you had enough statistical power to do so is that it's not simply all cause, it's cardiac cause. Those people that have no beat-to-beat -beat variability are much more susceptible to dangerous or fatal cardiac arrhythmias. That is definitely in, in the data that I've seen on the heart math side, that specific risk. If that's interesting, I can talk to Roland McCready if, if you'd like to see a study. I'm pretty sure he's got one. Uh, oh, he's yeah. the head researcher over there at HeartMath. What about aerobic exercise, though? I, I mean, so many people have that kind of religious belief. They have to do it to keep their heart and lungs healthy. What's going to keep the heart and lungs healthy? Appropriate high-intensity exercise. I mean, just this week, it, it's kind of out in the popular press. You can find it on the Internet. Just Google um, McMaster study on one minute aerobics. What they have found at McMaster University, they turned out another recent study on high intensity interval training, is that just a handful of one minute bursts on an ergometer produce as much aerobic or quote cardiovascular benefit as steady state activity carried out for hours per week. But let's put all that to the side and again make our definitions again because what's happened as a result of the whole Kenneth Cooper aerobics movement is that aerobic and cardio have become interchangeable and aerobics is a noun that described his particular exercise program which focused on steady state activity. Aerobic refers to a subsegment of metabolism. Now, aerobic metabolism occurs within the mitochondria, the powerhouse of the cell. But aerobic metabolism only can occur if it has the substrate to metabolize. It has to have fuel put into the mitochondria for aerobic metabolism to occur. And where do you think that fuel comes from? Well, it actually comes from outside the mitochondria and the liquid portion of the cell called the cytoplasm and it comes from anaerobic metabolism. You start off with glucose and you go through a 20-step process called glycolysis, the end product of which is pyruvate. And it's the pyruvate that gets shuttled into the mitochondria for aerobic metabolism to occur. Now, anaerobic metabolism, which produces the pyruvate, makes much less energy, but it can turn a lot faster than aerobic metabolism. So you can make this pyruvate at a much faster rate than the aerobic cycle can use it. And when that happens, the pyruvate is acted on by an enzyme called lactate dehydrogenase, and it makes, guess what? Lactic acid. That's where you get that burn and fatigue sensation when you work truly hard. But you have to understand that the only way that you can maximally train your aerobic system is to deliver pyruvate to it as fast as it can handle. If you're doing low-intensity steady-state activity, you're doing nothing to enhance aerobic capabilities because you're not delivering the pyruvate to it as fast as it can handle it. The other thing to keep in mind is this link between aerobic and cardiovascular is specious. Because when you look at a cell, a muscle cell, or any other cell of your body, the cardiovascular system is servicing that cell by delivering blood and oxygen and nutrients to that cell. 
there is no way that the cardiovascular system is hooked up only to the mitochondria. For aerobic to equal cardiovascular, the heart and blood vessels would have to go directly to the mitochondria and nowhere else. The heart and blood vessels are hooked up to the entire cell, to the global metabolic state, not just to the isolated metabolic state of aerobic metabolism that's going on in the mitochondria. This is a false construct built on bad information upon bad information upon it. It's a threefold level of false assumptions that have finally ended up with aerobic equaling cardio to the extent that you can now have a cardio theater or a cardio section of the gym. It's just completely wrong thinking from a physiologic standpoint. So this is what happens when uh, marketing gets involved with science, eh? <laughs> right. So, Dr. McGuff, that brings me to another point, and I know this is going to maybe piss a few people off, but you lay out four or five very specific things that you believe define exercise, something that produces all the health, as we talked about before. Do you think running marathons or Ironmans really counts as exercise, or should it be considered its own separate entity, as in Ironmans and marathons? Yeah, I, I think they should be considered a separate entity. Now, it does qualify to some extent of exercise. You are doing physical exertion. It does bring a stressor to the body, and it does bring a specific adaptation to the body. So by that criteria, it qualifies as exercise. But I think you really got to look at the These are very specific activities that are, in fact, sports. And when you try to turn that particular sport into exercise, you are producing a physical stressor that produces a specific adaptation. Unfortunately, that specific adaptation is a bad one. Not just on the wear and tear issue alone, just the, the constant pounding on the joints. I mean, there's not anyone that does these sports for any period of time that does not end up with bad joint problems, muscle imbalance problems, hip flexor tendonitis is rampant among triathlete and marathon participants. I was actually at Myrtle Beach this weekend just on a little mini vacation with my family, and they were having a marathon there, and I was just watching the people shuffle by, and, you know, it looked like people were trying to escape from Auschwitz. I mean, they just look terrible. They're shuffling along, and they look like they're in pain and do not look healthy, and it's because they're not. The specific adaptation that you induce by that type of activity is actually very negative. Remember what I said about the motor units and how they're recruited sequentially. If you're doing just low-intensity steady-state activity, what you're doing is you're recruiting the slowest twitch motor units only and fatiguing them slowly enough so that they recover. You just cycle over and over through those same motor units. Well, with regard to the intermediate and faster twitch motor units, what happens there is they're just along for the ride. They're not contributing to that process at all. So the biologic signal that is sent is that these two sections of motor units are just dead weight. So with that biological signal sent to the organism, its adaptive response is, let's get rid of that dead weight. Let's deconstruct these motor units. Well, one of the major things that determines your cardiovascular health is your insulin sensitivity and how well you can store sugar. Well, the faster twitch motor units are your biggest glycogen stores in your whole body. 
So what you've effectively done is you have decreased the largest glucose reservoir in your body. You have decreased its size. So the point at which it can become full of glucose and therefore need to downregulate insulin receptors occurs sooner. So decreased insulin sensitivity is the keystone of the metabolic syndrome. So what you've actually done is you've set up a scenario to make the whole constellation of the metabolic syndrome and systemic vascular inflammation and poor cardiac health, you've set that process into motion sooner and more aggressively than would have occurred if you would have done nothing. Okay, that makes a ton of sense. And before we get into a, a question about nutrition, I have to ask you something I've noticed. I know a lot of guys who do long-distance cycling and triathlons who are over 35, and none of them has any hair left on their head. Is this related? You know, I don't know. It could be an epigenetic thing because they, they swim so much that their genes have changed to make them more you know, smooth in the water, but <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's not what's going on here. <laughs> Those sort of questions are hard to ferret out because of selection bias. Sometimes I wonder if baldness just accelerates you know, the midlife crisis that makes you have to take on things that are perceived as you know, achievement-oriented or sort of the whole Johnny Quest syndrome. I mean, that... Triathlons and marathons have this huge aura of personal achievement surrounding them. So, you know, I, I think it's kind of the little penis sports car selection bias going on there that might be part of it. However, with less muscle, you're going to have less testosterone receptors to bind up testosterone. And if you have the gene for male pattern baldness, there's going to be, you know, what testosterone you have is going to have limited receptors to bind to. And if they bind the hair follicle receptors because they don't have anywhere else to attach to or have fewer sites to attach to because of less skeletal muscle, that could be a contributing factor as well. Interesting theory. You're the only guy I've ever known who could explain the reason for that, uh, if it's indeed statistically true. It's just observational. Yeah, Actorial, maybe a little bit of all things like that. Let's switch to the idea about nutrition. How does nutrition work when it comes to improving body composition? What role does it play? I think it's almost entirely nutrition, body composition. Make no mistake, I'm an exercise guy and I'm an exercise geek. But I am here to tell you definitively, both as an exercise geek, someone that's been in the game for a long time, and as a physician, you cannot exercise your way out of a bad diet. Not only that, you can gain an outstanding body composition with appropriate diet alone and no exercise whatsoever. And to a large extent, I almost prefer that if people do not have their diet in good order, that they not take on an exercise program. Because the standard American diet is one that engenders a large amount of systemic inflammation, including yes. systemic vascular inflammation, which is a chronic inflammation. Exercise, by its nature, whether it's what I view as proper exercise or what the public at large views as exercise, regardless of which you do, is an acute inflammatory event. There are inflammatory cytokines and interleukins and thromboxane and all sorts of inflammatory mediators that are released during the acute process of exercise. 
And if you don't have a proper diet, what you're doing is you're taking a chronic inflammatory state and superimposing an acute inflammatory state on top of it. And that is, at least theoretically, if not for sure, a potentially dangerous situation. So I think it's very important for your listeners to understand that get your diet in order, and you have an excellent visual on your website for how to pursue the appropriate diet. Don't bother embarking upon an exercise program. Get your diet in order first. Thank you so much for that, Dr. McGuff. It's interesting. Sometimes I get people who who flat out accuse me of lying when I, I talk about the idea that I didn't work out for two years straight because I have two young kids. I took on a new job, moved countries, and basically had enough other stress in my life that I said, I'm not going to exercise, but I'm going to eat as perfectly as I can. And I posted a picture of, you know, six pack and, you know, well-developed, yeah. as good as I've looked, especially given that I used to weigh 300 pounds and be obese. And people flat out say I'm lying and I was, you know, limiting calories and all this. In your experience, from what you said there, you know, physiology, the way you look anyway, can be almost 100% what you eat. And thanks for the validation there. <laughs> That's, I appreciate that. At the turn of the 20th century, no one exercised. If you brought up the notion of exercise up and all the way up until the 1940s, people would just laugh at you. <laughs> because normal human activity involved enough physical activity and exertion to keep perfect and outstanding body composition in the context of a proper diet. Clemson University is close to here, and there is a graduate student that uh, brought over a Maasai warrior that he was probably in his 50s. And I ran into this guy at Starbucks, <laughs> of all places. The graduate student was your typical estrogenic, pudgy-looking skinny, fat-looking graduate student, and this guy was probably in his 50s, and he looked like he was chiseled out of marble. I mean, he was ripped to shreds. He was muscular, not bodybuilder muscular, but I mean, decathlete muscular, very impressive looking, and, you know, had fairly good English skills, and I just walked up and introduced myself and talked to him for a while, asking, you know, what do you do for exercise? And he just laughed. He literally just laughed at me. They, they don't exercise. You know, they <laughs> eat their ancestral diet. And the best I can get down from him is that they jump. And that, you know, jumping is one of their rites of passage in demand, the ability to jump over someone's head <laughs> and the ability to jump over a row of cattle are tests of ascending into manhood. He actually had scars on his leg from um, being clawed by a lion that he killed. All aside, um, it's it just entering with an appropriate diet. This guy had a body that, with all the attention to detail that I've devoted to it over the years, that I could only ever hope to achieve. So, diet is where it's at. All right, and that was without exercise. While we're still talking about diet, though, what do you think about bulletproof coffee? I've not actually tried it. I've read about it. I think the concept is awesome. I'm talking about just the idea of putting the grass-fed butter in the coffee, not necessarily the upgraded coffee. We'll send you some beans after the show so you can try the beans. But what, what do you think about just that notion there? I think it's a great idea. I do it. I put a dab of Kerrygold butter in my coffee this morning. It makes it taste really good. But, I mean, it's a very effective way to get these healthy fatty acids 
I mean, these are integral components of your cell membrane. And to incorporate appropriate fats into your diet by whatever means that you can does a great deal towards enhancing your body composition because these get incorporated into your cell wall of every cell in your body. And your cell wall is composed of a lipid bilayer. If you drop fat into water, you'll see it forms a little spiracle. It's because the fat has a head on it that likes water and a tail that does not. So they'll orient all their heads outward and make a little spiracle. Well, the cell membranes are made of a bilayer. The heads point outward and the tails point inward. And what type of fat makes up that bilayer that makes your cell wall determines how the receptors that sit on your cell are going to function. If you have the appropriate fatty acids that are very plump, pliable, and flexible because of their carbon structure, all of the receptors that you need to respond to the hormonal environment are going to be facing outward into the environment where they can receive those hormones. Now, if you're eating a standard American diet that is very heavily laden in omega-6 fatty acids and trans fatty acids, that's what you're putting in your cell membrane. And when you do that, you end up with a cell membrane that is not very plump and is very brittle, and that causes all these hormone receptors to involute towards the interior of the cell which makes you unable to respond appropriately to normal hormonal signals. And over time, that affects the entire hormonal axis, which is very complicated. It's like two thermostats responding to output. So your whole hypothalamic pituitary axis is going to be messed up because of your inability to respond to circulating hormones. So getting in these kind of fats, people are very fat-phobic because of what's occurred in the American dietary scene over the past 20 or 30 years. But getting appropriate fats is absolutely crucial to appropriate hormonal response and signaling. That was the most detailed explanation of why you should include some butter in your diet that I've come across in a long time. And for listeners of this show, it's exactly the sort of thing that they want to hear. Like the level of detail is great. There's real science behind this and you can feel it. Everyone I know who adds some butter either to their coffee or just increases the amount they eat in their diet starts to feel better. And the hormone effect is is undeniable. Right. And... People are worried about getting fat because of the calorie content and everything, but what they don't realize is that the number one thing that's going to determine their energy balance is their hormonal response, their ability to respond appropriately to insulin, that the insulin receptors are on the surface to receive insulin, to appropriately respond to leptin, to have some sort of feedback to your brain that, hey, guy, it's time to stop eating. If those receptors are involuted and cannot respond with a hormone that's being released by your fat cells, you don't get any negative feedback. You don't get any signal to stop eating, which is why the wrong foods are so addictive, because you don't get the appropriate feedback as to when to stop eating. And secondly, these foods are so low in nutrient density that the only rational decision your body can make when presented with this crap is, well, there's no nutrients here. I might as well just store it because it's the only thing I can do with it. Dr. McGuff, you make an excellent point about the differentiating between high-quality foods and these low-quality crap that most people are subsisting on. 
Now we're going to get into a little bit more of the exercise stuff. I have a few questions about a few various types of exercise, which is kind of related because it's, you know, good exercise like you're talking about in Body by Science and maybe some suboptimal forms. And again, this might make people a little angry, but we're going to kind of talk about some of the more common forms of strength training. And if you can just spend a few seconds on each one of them, that'd be great and just what you think of them. What do you think are maybe some of the flaws and positive aspects of basic barbell training? Maybe something like Mark Ripito's starting strength. I think it has almost no flaws, frankly. The limitations of barbell training are really related to movements that go outside the appropriate plane of the joints in question and certain movements where superficial muscles when they become fatigued, all of a sudden will drop out and the load that you are using will suddenly get transitioned to deeper musculature. Now, the most efficient way to train muscle is through that sequential recruiting that I talked about where you eventually reach muscular failure under a given load. And all that really means is that the force output of your muscle is now less than the selected resistance times the moment arm that the resistance is acting through. So barbell training, if done appropriately and carefully with a limitation of range of motion, and what I would suggest doing to, to learn how to apply barbell training in the safest manner possible is look to Bill Day Simone, and you can just Google moment arm exercise, moment arm exercise. And he details how to properly use basic barbell strength training equipment in a way that is joint friendly. The only other danger I see with some people's application of barbell training is using things outside the appropriate joint range and also using things where fatigue can really result. You know, normally I'm a big advocate for training to failure, but for instance, with deadlifts, your spinal erectors are your superficial muscles and they're very powerful along with your hip extensors for performing a deadlift. But if you perform a deadlift all the way to fatigue, there's going to be a transition point where your superficial large muscles are fatiguing and becoming weaker, and they cross a threshold where they are now weaker than the deep stabilizer muscles like the multifidi and the very deep lumbar muscles. And what will happen is you're using a heavy load deadlifting, and all of a sudden you'll have a transition of that load from the large superficial muscles to these deep stabilizers that aren't meant to deal with that kind of load because they're normally spared from it. And that's when, you know, people get hurt and tweak their back and things like that. I have no real problems with barbell training at all. That makes me very happy because I'm a huge fan of barbell training. I was just doing deadlifts last night. Speaking of something that's maybe a little more fatiguing, though, what do you think of CrossFit? CrossFit, I have what I would call a secret admiration for. And the thing that I admire about Mark Ripito and and who's the guy that's the founder of CrossFit? Greg Glassman. Uh, Glassman. The thing I like about those guys is that they realize that there is human value to performing really hard things, to doing hard stuff. I like that embracement of truly demanding work and that there is something character building about the suffering component of it all. The things that I don't like about CrossFit is that 
while it is a great way of stimulating results, the manner in which they go about it can get you hurt. And it's just very high force activity. Everything's done, you know, explosively and with a lot of ballistic movement, a lot of joint hyperextension, kipping pull-ups have a lot of joint hyperextension, both the shoulder and the elbow, lots of joint unfriendly things, and also using skill-based movements in a fatiguing protocol is a prescription for disaster. So doing snatches and cleans and thrusters and things that require a lot of skill and combining that with fatigue, as the fatigue kicks in, that skill starts to deteriorate. I think you should only aggressively fatigue musculature in very conservative movements that do not require a whole lot of skill. I think when you combine a really skill-based movement like an Olympic lift, which was never meant to be a fatiguing protocol, in a fatiguing protocol, then you're going to get hurt. And the testament to that is, you know, you don't have to take my word for it. Just go to the website, go to their forums, and under forums, find the link that goes to discussion about injury and rehab. It speaks for itself. I mean, there's thousands upon thousands of posts with tens upon thousands of responses to it. You know, I get a numbness in my arm when I do overhead squats. I, let me tell you about my slap injury. Uh, I got this twinge in my back when I was doing the, my deadlifts. I mean, there's just a whole litany of uh, injury complaints going on there. I'm a very popular political blogger, just you know, wrote about really severe back problems that was trying to be attributed to uh, a minor accident that they had when it was very evident to me that it's probably related to you know, CrossFit protocols that they were doing. So it's a great conditioning program. It does produce great results, but you've got to look at the risk-benefit ratio. And if you're willing to take those risks, then you can go ahead and do it. But I think you got to acknowledge them on the upfront is all. I think you make an excellent point there. I saw a workout the other day that had people doing 30 snatches in one set, basically, which I thought was rather excessive. What do you think of stretching and mobility type work? Is that really necessary, and does it prevent injuries? Well, it's necessary and prevents injuries if you are partaking in a conditioning program that doesn't promote appropriate balance, or if you're participating in a sport that results in imbalance. I mean, you're probably going to need some mobility training if you're a competitive road cyclist, because you're just going to have chronic repetitive hip flexion, and you're going to get a hip flexor tendonitis, and you're going to have you know, some problems with weakness of your posterior chain and the imbalances that occur as a result of that. However, if you're performing a good, well-rounded strength training routine that covers all the muscle groups of your body, it's probably not necessary at all. If we define flexibility, we got to say that, you know, it's a good functional range of motion, and more flexibility is not necessarily a good thing. The shoulder joint is vulnerable because of its extreme degree of flexibility. The hip joint is much less vulnerable because it has much less flexibility. So more flexibility is not always a good thing. And to get appropriate mobility training and stretching basically involves the application of force through a joint's safe range of motion. And if you're doing appropriate strength training, that's built in. You don't have to supplement it 
you have a load on the muscle at the extreme of flexion and extension for that particular muscle group. And as long as that's going on, you don't really need to supplement it at all. That makes really good sense. We're running up on the end of our program here, and I failed to ask one of the questions I should have asked a little bit earlier. And this is about the big five workout that you've got listed in your book. Can you sort of really quickly run down what are the big five things that people need to know about? Yeah, before the rundown, I just want your listeners to understand that the big five is not anything magical. There's nothing very special about particular movements. You can construct your workout of whatever movements you like to as long as you, in some manner or fashion, cover the whole body. But I selected the big five for body by science, directing it at people, you know, just starting right out of the blocks. And the reason I chose these movements are they are very big, basic movements that involve modest joint excursion in a movement that is linear, straight line fashion that is very easy and natural to perform. What I wanted was a movement that would be safe to carry out as fatigue occurred and did not require a lot of skill to achieve so that the person doing the exercise could focus all of their intent on effort and intensity and not have to worry so much about the skills of the movement. So, having said that, the big five that I selected were a compound row exercise, which is a rowing motion. If it was barbell, it would be a bent over barbell row. And then a chest press, which Medex, Nautilus, Hammer Strength all make a chest press machine. For barbell training, it would be the bench press or bench press on a slight incline of about 15 degrees, I think is a little more friendly to the shoulder joint. And then a pull-down movement, which, you know, there are all sorts of pulley pull-down machines, or you can do a chin-up, and I tend to prefer slightly narrower than shoulder width grip and a palms-up or supinated position just because it enhances the range of motion and involves more muscle that way. And then an overhead press, which is a military press with a barbell, or overhead press with a Medex machine or Nautilus machine. I tend to like movements that have the hands in front of the plane of the face and with horizontal handles, that is the palms facing each other. That way the arms are rotated inward, the humerus bones are actually rotated inward or adducted, adducted, as opposed to the grip where the palms face forward and the arms are in line with the torso. When you externally rotate the humerus like that, that messes up what's called the scapulohumeral plane and gets the space between the top of the shoulder blade or the acromion and the head of the humerus tight, so you get a lot of impingement with that type of overhead press. So anyway, there's overhead press, and then the last one is a leg press movement, which in barbell would be a, a squat movement. So those are the big five, and basically they're just big compound movements, simple to perform, safe to go to fatigue, certain barbell things being the exception, and uh, simple to perform so that you can concentrate on effort and not coordination. 
That is an awesome list, and it's so simple compared to some of this complex stuff that, that people do. It, it seems like those are just the things that, that when you do them, you feel better and you look better. Now, we have a question that we ask every person who comes on the show at the end of the show. And that is, what are your top three recommendations for someone who wants to be powerful and high performance across all aspects of their life? So this may be something from your exercise expertise. It could be something completely different. But your top three most important things human beings should do to be more. First off is eat a paleo diet. And I would reference the schematic that you have on your website is one of the easiest and most user-friendly ways to do that. It kind of puts things on a continuum that's easy to understand. I tell your listeners, go get that, print it out, and use it. Um, The second is to perform a workout similar to what I advocate, but it doesn't have to be mine. Just keep it very simple, basic, brief, hard, and infrequent, and just do not overtrain. So train hard and don't overtrain. Allow enough recovery. I guess my third thing is more from a general life standpoint, looking backward over my life, what I'm going to tell my son is that anything that the government gives you a tax incentive to do, don't do it. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) So think about anything the government gives you a tax incentive for, and that's a good thing to avoid. That That is truly funny. I love that set of three. That's just hilarious. And uh, thank you so much for the kind words about the the Bulletproof Diet infographic. I I really do appreciate that. I didn't know it existed until you guys contacted me, but I'm so glad you did because I I, I look at it almost daily. I really enjoy it. Oh, wow. That's amazing and uh, so appreciated. And uh, likewise, I think your your book is uh, is a phenomenal work, and it's one that we're recommending to all the people who come to the site saying, what can I do? I say, well, when, he, when it comes to exercise, this is the book you should be reading. If I could, can, can I sure. plug a phone number? I do consultations. I do consulting for corporate fitness, home fitness centers, people's own workouts. That's I make a good bulk of money there outside the books and my personal training facility. And to call to make appointments for that, just call Ultimate Exercise, my personal training place. It is 864-886-0200. And uh, I do a lot of work in that realm as well. Would you also give our listeners your URL and uh, any, and maybe the, actually again the name of your book and where they can get it? Right, the URL is bodybyscience.net. That's the site for the book. The Body by Science book itself can be purchased uh, through Amazon or any major bookstore. It's published by McGraw-Hill and is available everywhere. There's the Body by Science question and answer book. It is available through Amazon exclusively through their CreateSpace account. So that can be found just by linking off Body by Science itself. It's listed there along with it. I also have other self-published books. Um, there's the Ultimate Exercise Bulletin 1. I have a book that's specific to BMX training. I have a DVD for exercise and a DVD for diet that are all available by calling the phone number that I referenced earlier. The website for my personal training facility is ultimate-exercise.com, and that pretty much covers everything. Awesome. I would really encourage... 
our listeners to check out your books and your other work. And for people who are really serious, definitely to give you a call. You are one of the top guys in your field and your level of, uh, of scientific research and your bar for knocking down marketing BS and focusing on what really works is, is set really high. And, and that's something that uh, I value a lot. I appreciate it. And what I want your readers to know is the diet that you advocate, exercise I talk about, the best thing about it is it sets you up to win and it makes everything easy. This does not have to be toil. It is your birthright to be lean, strong and healthy. And it's very easy to accomplish if you're doing the right things. Thank you so much, Dr. McGuff. That makes perfect sense. And I love your third tip there at the end, too. I don't know if you've read Rob Wolf's book, but one of the passages there, he says, whether the government is coming to give you dietary advice or a firing squad, the result is always the same. And I thought that was perfect. Yeah, they can't help themselves. It just comes with the territory. Yep. There's one other thing for our listeners. Everything we just mentioned, all the URLs, links to all the books, and Dr. McGuff's phone number will be on the show notes for the site, as well as a full written transcript of the entire interview here. So it'll be searchable and everything linked so you can find this stuff. Awesome. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for being on the show today, Dr. McGuff. It was my pleasure. Now we'll start with the Upgraded Self Radio listener Q&A. The first question is from Michael. In addition to eating a healthy diet, what supplements do you suggest to boost the immune system? The first thing to think about is whether your immune system actually needs boosting. An overactive immune system can be as bad as an underactive immune system. So first, you need to look at, you know, are you experiencing major allergy attacks? Allergies are a sign of an immune system that might be too boosted. So you need to kind of pay attention to what you're really attempting to do versus boost or optimize. The things that I recommend for optimizing your immune function are vitamin D. You want your levels in about the 70 to 90 range. That's blood levels. And the best way to get there, if you're not going to invest the 40 or so dollars it takes to do the test, is to take 1,000 IU of vitamin D3 for every 25 pounds of body weight. And that's based on the recommendations from the Vitamin D Research Council. I'm also a huge fan of the liposomal glutathione that we have on UpgradedSelf.com. The reason I use liposomal glutathione is that glutathione is the primary detoxifier in your liver, and it's a major cellular antioxidant throughout the body. It's tough to take glutathione orally, though, because it gets digested and you don't get the benefit. The form that I use and recommend is encapsulated in fat that absorbs directly into your bloodstream through the gut wall and raises levels as much as, for instance, even an intravenous dose could raise it. So this is a way of getting it into the system that's cost-effective and very, very useful. The second I might get a sore throat, even a little tickle, I take a little extra glutathione, I take it before I get on a plane, and it really helps me stay well. Vitamin C is, an, is a stalwart here. Vitamin C is just necessary. If you take it in relative small doses, like a gram or two, it's good for your skin and it's generally good for immune system. But if you're getting sick and you want to boost your immune system in the face of a cold, you want to take vitamin C in very high doses, high enough to give you diarrhea, basically. And then you back off a little bit from that. I normally take about 10 grams of vitamin C a day. That's my number. I've been comfortable with 10 for a long time. But if I'm starting to come down with something, I'll actually crank that number up 
and sometimes I've been able to take 100 grams a day without getting diarrhea because my body's need for vitamin C goes up that much in the face of an infection. During one of my worst sinus infections, maybe a decade ago, I didn't want to use antibiotics. So I had intravenous vitamin C. I had it two days in a row, 100 grams of vitamin C intravenously per day, plus another 150 grams orally per day. We're talking handfuls of capsules here. I did beat the sinus infection. So vitamin C, up that dose if you're trying to boost your immune system. I recommend whey protein concentrate. The upgraded whey that I formulated is about 20% bovine serum albumin, which is the part of whey protein that's most proven to raise your glutathione levels. Colostrum is another supplement that's similar to bovine serum albumin, but I prefer BSA because you can take a lot more of it in the supplement form than you can colostrum. Colostrum is basically the very first milk that comes out of a cow after giving birth, and bovine serum albumin is much more widely available and has the same immunoglobulin type of things in it. The final thing I'd recommend is that you look at taking some proteolytic enzymes. My favorite one is serapeptase. Serapeptase helps your body to break down the products of inflammation and even in some cases to break down phlegm. So if you're looking to boost the immune system, getting additional circulation by addressing things like thrombin that make your blood a little thicker is a good idea. I take about three serapeptase capsules of, I think they're 200, whatever the units are on serapeptase. Uh, take about three of those a day based on some research that I haven't cited on the site yet. The next question is from Michael. What are your thoughts on this interesting piece of research about sleep? And he provides a link to an article by the BBC. That article talks about how a large body of evidence and some anecdotal reports pointing to humans sleeping in two separate four-hour chunks instead of one eight-hour period. There's a theory, and it seems pretty possible, that humans naturally like to sleep in several chunks. I would say the research isn't exactly conclusive. There is a lot of clinical evidence that says uninterrupted sleep is more beneficial. Sleeping in multiple phases isn't as efficient as you know, one chunk of bulletproof sleep. I'm talking efficiency from a time perspective. You know, If you're only going to sleep four hours, doing it in two two-hour chunks is a bad idea, and I've tested that on myself. To be clear, the people in this study weren't getting up and being productive during the wake period. They were just lying in bed. I will tell you that I have tried this kind of biphasic sleep, as it's called, and I find it to be pretty interesting. There's a body of research, mostly looking at like Greek writing and even Renaissance period, where it looks like this was so common that it was just assumed that everyone did it in the writing. And the idea is you go to sleep when it gets dark, sleep for a few hours, wake up for one to two hours around 1 or 2 a.m. During that time, you journal, pray, or have sex, and then you go back to sleep. And you're in a sort of a floating, kind of semi-lucid dreaming kind of state. And when I've experimented with doing that, I actually do have pretty profound kind of meditation-like experiences. So as with almost everything on the site, this is an easy thing to test. You can biohack this. Try it for a while. Allow yourself to wake up at one, wake up gently without a clanging alarm clock. But and instead of forcing yourself back to sleep, you know, open up a journal, write something down and see what comes out. If you like it and you feel great the next morning and your Zio score looks good, hey, you did it. The next question is from Walter. I know flax seeds suck as an omega-3 source as they're exclusively ALA. For omega-3s, I take cod liver oil every now and then, but mainly just eat grass-fed meat and fish and reduce my omega-6 intake. 
However, is there anything wrong with ground flax seeds to add some crunch to meals? I've heard they may have some the same problems as soy in terms of phytoestrogens. Do you think ground flax seeds, not flaxseed oil, are an acceptable food source? I highly recommend you don't do that. It is going to add significant amounts of oxidized oil, not just ALA, but oxidized ALA. When I met my wife, uh, Dr. Lana, she was doing two things wrong, and those things were actually keeping her weight down. She was she was far too thin for her own good and just could not put weight on no matter what. One of the two things she was doing was she was consuming, oh, maybe two tablespoons of ground flax seeds in the morning. The oils and flax seeds go rancid right away as soon as you grind them. So if you're going to do this, you need to grind your own seeds, you get them in the body, and then you incorporate easy-to-oxidize oils in your cells. I simply don't recommend doing this. It's not worth it for the crunch. Seriously. I mean, try some toasted coconut or something. There are a few other problems with flax seeds, too. There's some worry that different kinds of flax seeds might be mixed with genetically modified varieties. So if you're worried about that, that might be a problem. Uh, and flax seeds are pretty high in phytoestrogens. Whether or not that makes a huge difference is still yet to be seen. And there are a lot of other foods that are high in phytoestrogens, too, like carrots, pomegranates, rice, and yams. But I think the main problem, as Dave pointed out, is the high omega-6 intake, which is most problematic. So it's really just not worth it. There's something else about flax seeds, too. There's something called flaxseed lignans, which there isn't very much of it in flax seeds. You get about 500 milligrams per kilo. And this can have beneficial effects. And that means about three to seven tablespoons of flax seeds. The problem there is that well, you're going to have to take so much omega-6 oil that any benefit you get from the lignans is probably not worth it. There is a product out there that I've experimented with, but I couldn't tell you its name right now. And they take 50 pounds of flax seeds to make a little canister, about four ounces of straight flaxseed lignin powder. I experimented with that for some Lyme disease. I don't know if it was terribly effective, but Anyhow, that would be the beneficial parts of flax seeds. Don't be confused by, oh, they have fiber and healthy oils. That is not the case. You shouldn't be eating that stuff if you want to be bulletproof. It's time for the biohacker report. This is the part of the show where you get to hear some of the latest research that caught our attention this week. Our first really exciting study is called Orbital Prefrontal Cortex Volume Predicts Social Network Size, an Imaging Study of Individual Differences in Humans. This research comes out of the University of Liverpool in the UK, and it was published by the Royal Society of the Proceedings of Biological Sciences. I have to admit, I have no idea what makes a society royal or not, but more power to them. There's some researchers out there who've proposed that humans' large brains are partially the result of having larger social networks. So they went out and they looked at magnetic resonance images of people's brains and assessed the size of their social networks. And they found that people with more friends generally did have a larger prefrontal cortex. It's unclear if having more friends caused us to grow larger brains or if having larger brains allowed us to interact more with others. Either way, being nice to others may increase your brain size, so you certainly could have more friends that way. It's also pretty reasonable to say that increasing your mental capacity will help you interact with other people. And keep in mind, too, that the prefrontal cortex is the most recently evolved part of the brain, the one that kind of integrates our reptilian instinctive part of the brain with our more higher logic. So having a functioning large prefrontal cortex is particularly important. 
my prefrontal cortex was not receiving blood flow, and I've published those scans on the site using a spec scan. I can tell you that as I established blood flow and turned on my prefrontal cortex with brain hacking techniques, that the size of my network and the number of friends I have did go up substantially. Maybe it's also just that I started showering. I don't know. The next study is called Quality Control, Accuracy, and Prediction Capacity of Dual Energy X-Ray Absorptiometry Values and Data Acquisition. And this is a study looking at the accuracy of DEXA scans. And that's something you'll know about if you read Tim Ferriss' 4-Hour Body Book. The study was published by Belgian researchers in the Journal of Physiological Anthropology. The DEXA scan was compared to a dissection of a pig. And dissection, so far, is the most accurate method we have for estimating or determining body composition. They found the DEXA scan overestimate, and I'm quoting here, overestimates total weight, lean mass, and fat-free mass, and underestimates both mass and the percent of fat you're carrying. A DEXA scan is basically going to tell you that you're heavier, more muscular, and have less body fat than you actually do. This is really important because a lot of people are trying to gauge fat loss, muscle gain, and even bone health with DEXA scans. And there are other studies showing that it's actually not even that accurate for determining your bone density. Luckily, DEXA scans are more accurate when they're comparing people between groups, like in a study. But this study and others show that DEXA scans are pretty horrible for determining individual body composition. In my opinion, the best way to evaluate body composition is by comparing someone to an anatomy chart, or by estimating it with fat calipers and the combination of an anatomy chart. You basically look at a human that has all of his flesh removed, and then you compare that to a picture of a person, and you can generally get a pretty accurate estimate that way. That's kind of funny because, you know, the four-hour body is really about getting the most results for the least effort. So actually hacking the test to make the test say that you have more muscle and less fat than you actually do might be the fastest way to do it at all, right? Absolutely. Yeah, you could lose like 20% (laughs) of your body fat in the difference of an hour. Wonderful. That sounds like good biohacking technology to me. Our final study of the day is titled Exposure to Soy-Based Formula in Infancy and Endocrinological and Reproductive Outcomes in Young Adulthood. It's published by JAMA, the Journal of the American Medical Association, and the research comes out of the University of Pennsylvania, my alma mater. The researchers there looked at the relationship between asthma and reproductive problems in infants that were fed soy or cow milk formula. Now, the researchers concluded that soy did not have any meaningful change, but some people who have at least as big of a perspective as the researchers, that would be the Weston A. Price Foundation, did a closer analysis and found that infants consuming soy formula did have a higher risk of asthma and reproductive problems. Now, this is kind of interesting. We have kind of the stalwart of Western medicine who looked at the data and said, oh, soy doesn't have a meaningful change, but people who are admittedly fans of dairy based on what I believe is quite a lot of research, the Western A. Price Foundation is you know, one of the eat meat, eat animal fat, eat dairy fat sorts of groups based on historical and ancestral knowledge as well as modern science. So why is it that two different groups with two different agendas can look at the same data and they can come up with totally different answers? What I think is going on here is that the desire for the soy formula to be the same from large industry may have influenced the results here. And in this case, given all of the research I did for the Better Baby book and what I choose to feed my own kids, 
I would not allow a child in my care to have soy formula. There is no benefit to doing that over cow milk. So I tend to believe the Weston A. Price Foundation here when they rehash the numbers. That said, the best option of all is mother's milk, but a cow-based formula is going to be better than soy. Thanks for listening today. You can find links to everything we talked about in the show notes at bulletproofexec.com. We also post a full transcript of everything you just heard so that you can find using search anything we talked about today. If you enjoyed this, we always appreciate a positive ranking on iTunes, and we love it if you sign up for our mail list at bulletproofexec.com slash mail so that we can let you know when our next podcast comes out. Army, take care. Talk to you later. Later, Dave. The Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.